listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsluth, and today it is late in the morning of Saturday the 12th of June in Seoul, and around 10 p.m. on the east coast of America, where I'm joined via Zoom by today's guest, Professor Emmanuel Kim, to talk about North Korean literature and comedy in North Korean films. Before we do that, I'd like to remind you to please leave a review about this podcast wherever you can and share this podcast episode with everyone you know and with three people who you don't. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. If you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, which helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day. Also, if you have any feedback or questions or guest recommendations, please feel free to send them to podcast at nknews.org. All right, so to introduce my guest today properly, my guest is Dr. Emmanuel Kim, the Korea Foundation and Kim Raynaud Associate Professor of Korean Literature and Culture Studies in the East Asian Languages and Literatures at the George Washington University. His specialty is in North Korean literature, film, and culture. He already has three books to his name that we'll discuss shortly. Uh, thanks for joining me on the show, Emmanuel. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I, I must confess to my eternal shame that uh, I've been thinking about having you on for a long time. It just never got around to it. And, and I feel like I'm the last one on the block to have you on his show. So apologies <laughs> for not getting you on much sooner. Not a problem. Not a problem. Well, uh, congratulations belatedly on publishing three volumes in a little over three years. That's quite a feat. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And let's talk briefly about your books and then discuss some North Korean comedy films that are available on YouTube. Sure. Okay, so your first book, uh, Rewriting Revolution, Women, Sexuality and Memory in North Korean Fiction, published by the University of Hawaii Press in April 2018. Give us a little summary. What's it all about? Yeah, so I look at short stories, novels published from the 1960s to about 1990s, and I examine the shifts that have been done in that world and to bring out some of the evident changes, some of the less evident changes. And I found that the changes mostly happened with the depiction of women, uh, their sexuality, mm. and generally memory. So it's rather fascinating how it's changed from the 1960s, 70s, and the 80s, because we generally have an idea that all North Korean literature is the same, has yeah. never changed, it's all propaganda. Uh, but this is not true. The more you read it, you'll realize some of the nuances, and those nuances are very, very evident in women's sexuality and memory. Okay, that's interesting. Is this based on your PhD thesis? It is. Uh, so tell us, uh, well, first of all, before I ask you about the findings, uh, what kind of source texts did you use to examine or test your thesis? Right. So I started reading Joseon uh, Munak from the very beginning. Right. That's a monthly magazine put out in North Korea, isn't it? That is correct. And each month has either three to five stories, short stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started reading it from the 1960s every month, every year up until 1990s, uh, actually about 1992 or 94, right before the arduous march, the famine. And uh, I, I said, I have to stop. I, I have to stop because, it, you know, I have to draw my own parameters. Right. Uh, I, I can't discuss all of it, and yeah. I don't, right? Yeah, so I, I picked and chose stories that really uh, were, you know, very commonplace, something that's very typical of North Korean literature or something that we would assume to be very typical of North Korean literature, mm -hmm. and some of those that we would find it rather interesting, and it's atypical, so that's what I've done. Did you find reading, um, you said you read everything in Jawson Munak from, what, 1960 till just before the, uh, the famine of the early 1990s? That is correct. Was that an arduous process or did you actually have fun doing it? It was an arduous task, yeah. <laughs> uh, very daunting. And uh, my eyes got a little blurry because Boy. one story looked like the other story. Yeah. And it really seemed like you know, the writers only switched their names from Comrade Lee to Comrade Kim, but the Boy. story remained the same. Ah. So it was very discouraging at one point. Yeah. And I wanted to just throw in the towel. But once I've identified some of the shifts and changes that were happening, then it became a little more exciting. And that's when I discovered, well, what the North Koreans call novellas, right? It's not a lengthy novel, but it's like a mid-sized novel. Yeah. 
those stories just blew me away. And the ones that blew me away all happened to be uh, written in the 1980s by this cohort of writers who grew up in basically the same time period. Hmm. And they're still alive today and they're writing and they're considered uh, elite writers in North Korea. So yeah, tell us about some of the findings, some of the, uh, the surprising things that you, you picked up in those novellas from the 1980s. Yeah, so what we see in the 1960s, early 1960s is very different from the late 1960s. Early 1960s still has that kind of socialist oomph to it where mm. the writers and the people really envisioned the socialist paradise. Mm. So they really tackled this socialist realist style of writing borrowed from the Soviet Union. And you have strong images of women, men, people trying to advance with technology and this kind of collective mindset. Now, the collective mindset never really goes away. But what did change was in the, toward the late 1960s, a lot of the women who were strong, outspoken, hmm. all of a sudden became a, far more domesticated. Mm. And one of the reasons is the party and the leadership really emphasized Kim Il-sung's mother and Kim Il-sung's first wife ah. as the model citizen for all women. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, you see these images of Kim Il-sung's mother and wife in the traditional hanbok alongside their kind of revolutionary uniform. So they're embodying both this domestication and yep. going out and doing something for the revolution. And, you know, in the 1970s, you get a lot of women who resemble this image of Kim Il-sung's mother who stays at home and takes care of the next generation of socialist revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. So they're all domesticated. But by the 80s, that changes once again, and all the women are going out to work, and they're doing this dual labor of mm. working outside and also taking care of the family at home. Right. And you start to see these women grumbling and complaining about their um, you know, lifestyle. So mm -hmm. th the very fact that women can finally voice their grumblings is uh, rather interesting. Mm. And, but unfortunately, by the 1990s, you see women coming, returning back to the home. Uh -huh. So, you know, again, these shifts and all these modulations of depiction of women is very fascinating. Do you think that, uh, you know, we, uh, outside of the field of uh, North Korean literature, just in, in history, we've heard that the arduous march and the aftermath really changed gender roles in the workplace and in, in terms of who was the breadwinner in the household quite a lot that uh, women were going out doing a lot of the work while uh, North Korean men were forced to turn up to effectively unproductive jobs at idle factories. Do you think that if you looked at fiction written after that period, you'd see a change again where women go out and become the stronger characters doing the double burden of work outside and inside the house again? Yes, that's correct. So women will continue to do the double labor, right? Mm. The difference is the women no longer have this kind of outspoken uh, nature. They just, you know, when the men speak, they quiet down. Mm. And so it's very different from what happened in reality, right? So you're mm. absolutely right. During the arduous march, women were the breadwinners and they were out in the front trying to find means to survive. And that really shows this kind of agency within women. Yeah. But in fiction, it's the opposite, right? The women are subservient to the men. Mm. And, you know, the party's really trying to enforce this strong image of a domesticated woman who listens yeah. to the state. Mm -hmm. Now, tell us briefly about um, what you picked up about women's sexuality and memory in North Korean fiction. Yeah, so this is really interesting because you're not going to get clear, gratuitous sex, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to see that in literature because that's not really wholesome in North Korea. Well, and even romance can be often subsumed, subservient yes. to, you know, uh, love for Kim Il-sung, love for the party, love for the fatherland rather than man's love for a woman, right? That is absolutely true, right. So I walked in reading these fiction, you know, works, uh, thinking like that as well. Yeah. But then uh, there are times where the lovers would get really close to each other and then all of a sudden, the imagery will change to looking at the moon, looking at two birds on a, a branch, mm -hmm. um, looking at the river flowing down and yeah. crashing on the rocks. <sighs> and you have to kind of wonder, why this imagery? Why this sudden change? Right. So, yeah, they don't, they don't actually write the sexuality, yeah. but it is implicit with the, nature, the natural setting. 
So mm. that's really interesting. Okay, so it's so it's hinted at. Yes. Right. Yes. And what about memory? So memory is really interesting because when you read early works from the 1960s or even 1950s, memory is not individual memory. It is always collective memory. Mm. And the collective memory is based on the Japanese colonial period right. or the Korean War. Yeah. So my individual memory is actually a collective national memory. Yeah. And, you know, just like I live in D.C., you walk around DC, everything is a memorial, right? Yeah. You know, it's it's celebrating what has happened in the past. And we as uh, modern day citizens must appreciate and honor those who have died for us mm -hmm. 60 years ago, right? Yeah. You know, the same thing happens in North Korea. And all these stories, a lot of the stories would show this kind of individuals looking at one's past to link that past to the larger national past. Mm. But starting with the 1980s, individual memory remains at the individual level, right? Yeah. And it's very personal. It's very private. And this is something that we've never seen in previous uh, works of fiction. So there's more of a, yeah, uh, the personal stories being told. Yes. Yes. Okay. Right. And sometimes if one thinks back uh, at the colonial period or the Korean War, typically there's an absent father, an mm. absent biological father. Because he's been killed in the war? That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But, uh, you know, that absent father gets filled with Kim Il-sung. Uh, right? I guess. Yeah. But uh, in the 80s, that's not necessarily the case. So there's an additional level of intrigue there. Mm. Tell me more about intrigue, because that, that intrigues me. <laughs> Well, we can we can talk about this all day. Really. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's true. Okay, I don't want to get too caught up in that one because we've still got two books and then films to talk about. Okay, so move on to your second book. Uh, you actually published a translation of a novel from North Korea called Friend, published in April 2017 by Weatherhead Books on Asia, uh, which is uh, credited to both the original North Korean author Nam Yong Pek and to yourself. Congratulations. And how did you get an author credit? So I, I visited North Korea in 2015 mm -hmm. and met with the author. And, you know, we were only scheduled to meet for one day, but we ended up meeting for three days. Ah. And I got to know his entire work, his, his life story, and then, of course, his novel. And I you know, sat and we, made, we spoke for hours about yeah. the novel. I told him aspects of the novel that I didn't like. Mm -hmm. And you know, places where it could have been improved, really. Yeah. Uh -huh. And in the end, I asked him, look, I'm going to translate this novel. So uh, I need your permission. I only got a verbal consent, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, so you got verbal consent from uh, from the author, from Mr. Peck. I remember um, when we first met almost 10 years ago, you were already working with this novel, weren't you? That's correct, because while I was doing my research, I came across Friend mm. and... I decided this is going to be the cornerstone of my dissertation and ah. my first book. So yeah. in this book, in this one novel, it has the representations, the shifting representations of women, sexuality, and memory. Okay. Now, was this book also published in Joseon Munhak or was it published as a self-standing uh, volume? It was a self-standing volume. Okay. So what was it about this book that, and uh, the way that the author wrote it that really gripped you? Yeah. First of all, the strong characters, the very memorable characters, the dialogue was very memorable. And his language, his use of the Korean language is absolutely beautiful. Mm. The opening is phenomenal. Uh, there's drama already at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. the, the first page already has drama. Yeah. And the ending is very ambiguous. And that's what I really like about a lot of the writers in the 1980s. Mm. They, they don't have this closure that you typically see in other works of fiction in North Korea. You're supposed to have a happy ending. You're supposed yeah. to have the party promising a better future for all the citizens. Right. But that's not guaranteed in a lot of the novels, including this one, Friend. So when was Friend published originally? 88. Okay. Is that ambiguous ending, that uh, non-happy, non-party centric ending, is that a, uh, an open breach of the rules of uh, socialist realist literature? No, I'm not going to go that far. Breach is a strong word. Okay. I think 
I think there was a experimental period during this time. Yeah. Because again, it's not just this novel, but many during this time period. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to say it's one person uh, breaching that style and yeah. formula. So no, that's that. Yeah, that might be going a little too far. When you went and met with him uh, over those three days, did you get any sense from him that he experienced difficulties or pushback or obstacles in in having that book published the way that he'd written it? No, the book was published rather easily. Mm. One thing he said was that it could have used better editing. Mm -hmm. If he had a better edit editor, it would have probably been a better book. Mm -hmm. uh, and I agreed with him on that one because there are a lot of inconsistencies throughout the novel. And so... Are these like sort of continuity errors when you make a TV drama? Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So, you know, with a better, with a keener eye for details, yeah. I think a, a good editor would have been able to identify those issues. Yeah. But no, this novel was you know, perceived to be very, it's going to be really popular. So right. I think the editor pushed it out and it, it was indeed very popular. And do, do you get the sense that, uh, I mean, you speak of, uh, very highly of, uh, of Peck's writing style. If he had been a novelist in South Korea, do you think he also would have been successful? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll take a step further. I, I yeah. think many North Korean writers uh, would have been very, very good writers in South Korea. Hmm. Okay, obviously, they'll be dealing with different subject matter. Oh, of course, of course, of course. But th so there is noticeable skill in, in, uh, in the, the writings of North Korean authors. Yes, because they're not writing from a vacuum, meaning uh, just within the North Korean state. They've been exposed to European literature, mm. Chinese literature, Japanese literature. Some writers were even, uh, you know, they, they've also read uh, South Korean uh, literary works. Oh, so they're not blind to what's happening around the world. They hmm. know the style and the genre of different fiction around the world. But mostly, I think what really captivated the North Koreans is the European Romantic period. I think that really fits in with the North Korean style. Mm. And so uh, Victorian literature from England mm. and that whole kind of, yeah, the Romantic period was really there for the North Korean writers. It fit their uh, style and sort of sensibility. When you met with Peck, did he tell you in particular any favorite authors that he had from the, the Western tradition of literature? Yeah, he liked uh, Les Mis and mm. uh, Jane Eyre. Right, okay. Uh, do you write about your meetings with him in the, uh, in the book as a sort of an addendum to the translation of the novel itself? Right. I, I think I briefly mentioned that in the introduction, mm -hmm. but I don't go into it in depth because I wrote that. I, I translated my interview with him separately uh, in the Journal of Korean Studies. So I okay. didn't want to overlap. Yeah. Right. So people can find that in the Journal of Korean Studies if they're interested. That is correct. It, yes. uh, it, well, I mean, it was certainly a, uh, something that few people would dream is possible to not only meet with the author and do a, you know, a perfunctory, you know, a, a bow and would you sign the book, but to actually spend three days uh, in close conversation with him, that's something that, you know, it's, it's almost unheard of. Yes. Uh, well, now that you've published the book, have, do you have any idea how he's reacted or how the North Korean uh, publishing industry has reacted to it? Yes. Uh, they want me to pay the royalties, right? So yes. Now you're American in America. That would be difficult. I imagine that uh, that's slightly difficult. Yes. Peck actually wrote me a handwritten letter yeah. and they scanned it and they emailed it to me. So uh -huh. uh, he's in good health and he wishes me well. But yeah. um, yes, the North Korean publishing company wants me to pay the royalty. Okay. And that, that's everything, all the royalties, is it? Well, they didn't really specify, but okay. uh, that I, I presume yeah, that's the case. Right. They didn't give a, a dollar amount, but they kind of left it open-ended. Yes. Gosh, okay. Well, um, is, is that a matter that's sort of left unresolved for now for, you know, at a later date? It is. Gosh, okay. To be continued. To yes, be continued. Good, good luck with that. Exactly. Uh, and your third book, which will bring us into the discussion of some films, uh, Laughing North Koreans, The Culture of Comedy Films, published by Lexington Books in June, just about a year ago. Yes. Congratulations on that one. Uh, comedy in North Korean film, is it a thing? Huge thing huge ah. it dominates the culture really 
Absolutely. I mean, talking, we're talking about from the 1950s, even before that in the mm. 1940s. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Huge. So you've seen a lot of North Korean comedy films then I take it. Whatever's available. Yeah. Where is there an archive? Uh, yeah. In the North Korean, uh, the information center for North Korea in Seoul. Okay. In the, uh, the Korean national library down there in uh, Socho. That is correct. Right. Is North Korean comedy different from South Korean comedy? I'm really curious to know what's similar and what's different. So many people have asked me this. And on, you know what? That's really interesting because just recently on YouTube, mm. people have been putting up 1970s South Korean comedy. Uh-huh. And it resembles North Korea very much. Really? Very much. Now, now, in North Korea, we're talking about 2021, right? Yes. So whatever stage performance they're doing now, 2021, yep. South Koreans have been doing this in the 70s. Ah, okay. Right. I would say up to the 80s. Now, I think a few people have remarked, and I, I found to be the case, that in South Korea, uh, slapstick has a, uh, a big part in, in the comedy world. Right. If you watch gag concert yeah. or people who make, you, make us laugh, you know, they, they have all these bits where... Uh, they fall to the ground, they right. slap each other, they spit on each other, they throw food at each other, and so forth, right? I mean, this is typical slapstick comedy in Hollywood in the 1940s, right? With right. The, like, the, th the Three Stooges or whatnot, right? Yeah. Yeah, South Koreans somewhat maintain that kind of comedy to a certain extent, but North Koreans do not do that. Are you saying that there really is not much slapstick in North Korean comedy? Yeah, they, they don't find it funny when mm. another human being hits another human being. Okay, but what about if another human being has an accident, you know, uh, trips on yes. a banana peel, for example? There are no banana peels in North Korea, unfortunately. Okay. However, if the individual makes a fool out of himself, yeah. not necessarily physically, but mm. is caught doing something or, mm -hmm. you know, realizes that he's been doing something incorrectly. Yeah. That is a good source of comedy for North Koreans. Do you find North Korean comedy films entertaining? Yes. Okay. Uh, not all of them, though. Not all of them. <laughs> not all okay. of them. Okay. And we'll get to three, three good examples of that in a moment. Yes. Um, yes. From different periods. Uh, what made you decide to write this book? And did it take a long time? Yes. Uh, so when I was doing my research in North Korean literature, mm. I was at the library, the National Library, yep. and I was taking a break. Right. The librarian approaches me and says, Mr. Kim, would you like to watch a North Korean comedy film? I said, North wow. Korea has comedy films? Yeah. And she said, this is uh, one of the fam uh, famous ones. And I watched it inside the library. Mm -hmm. I put my headset on and yep. I was laughing. Wow. Do you remember the title of that first film? Well, absolutely, because that was the cornerstone of my third book. Ah. It's My Family's Problem. Okay. Yeah, so in the original title in Korean, it's Urijip Munje. Yeah. So the North Koreans have uh, translated as the problem with our house. Oh, I see. But I didn't like that translation because it sounded like they had some kind of plumbing issue. Or right, something. or, or the, the roof is leaky. That's right, that's yeah. right. So I uh, converted it to My Family's Problem because... Yeah. Uri in Korean could be both our or my. Yeah. So, you know, it became a whole series. There were 12 series altogether, and ah. it spanned over a, a decade. Hmm. And it's a fan favorite. If you ask many defectors of a certain age, yeah. they will all remember. When were they made? Uh, they started in 1972. Yeah. And ended like in 86 or something. Gosh. Okay. And it's the same characters. No. So oh. the main characters are the same, but yeah. the problematic characters are different. Ah, uh, yes. But what's interesting, Jacob, mm. is this, right? Yeah. Initially, when I started watching these comedy films, I just watched it for the content. Yeah. What is this film about? What right. is the propagandistic message in this one, right? Yeah. And it's very clear. There's propaganda everywhere, right? I mean, you can't avoid that in North Korea, right? It's mm -hmm. very didactic, right? Yeah. There's no way of avoiding that. So... When I started doing my research in comedy films, I realized that there are only a handful of com comedians in North Korea. Mm. And they just keep reappearing in all these films together. Okay, yeah. So the series is 12 parts. And you see all the famous comedians and actors mm -hmm. appear in this series. Right. right. So 
you know, here in the United States or in the capitalist world, I guess, um, we would call them a franchise. Yeah. But not in North Korea, right? So they just call it a series. Yep. Okay. But let's talk about three uh, North Korean comedy films that people can find on YouTube. Two of them are feature-length comedies, and one is a short public service announcement with strong comedic elements, including, uh, to my view, a little bit of slapstick. Uh, the three films are Jarang Kutte Isen Il, or Boasting Too Much from 1970, which is actually a short feature. It's only about an hour long. Uh, Uria Hyangi, or Our Fragrance from 2003, which is about an hour and 20 minutes. And the short film Nega Chajan Bormul, or The Treasure That yeah. I Found, which was made sometime in the last 10 years. To our listeners, you can find all of them uh, on YouTube, and we'll try and add uh, links to those on the show notes page on the website. So the first one, Charan Kutteis and Il, or Boasting Too Much, why did you choose this film? I love this film, man. This film... Is it part of that franchise? No, it's not. Okay. It's not. But all the comedians from that franchise yep. appear in this film. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, so in other words, what I find fascinating about North Korean comedy films yeah. is when people go, when North Koreans go to watch these films, sure, they might be going to watch it for the content. Mm-hmm. But it's also because their favorite comedian appears in this film. Yeah. So the main character, his name is Che Man Ho. Yeah. He, he's the hands down the most famous comedian in North Korean films, oh. the industry. He's the most famous. And any film he appears in, I watch. Right? Okay. Because he's hilarious to me. Right. He's not your typical slapstick Charlie Chaplin style, I love Lucy, Lucille Ball style mm -hmm. character. However, he's more like a Spencer Tracy or, mm. or like a Steve Carell kind mm -hmm. of from The Office, right? Okay, sort of clueless? Yeah, the clueless bumbling, bumbling fool. Yeah, the right. bumbling fool. Right? Okay. Yeah, but who thinks he's doing the right thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, uh, you actually made subtitles for this film, didn't you? I did, I did. And, and why did you come to do that? Well, because I have to teach it in my I course. I see. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. So it's for practical reasons. Is this particular uh, film typical or atypical of North Korean movies of its time? Of its time, it's very typical. Okay. Yeah, this kind of misunderstanding. Ah, yeah. Okay. And, and of, that, uh, of the North Korean comedy uh, genre, is it also typical? Yes. I mean, okay. yeah, I suppose, yes. And what can we learn about North Korean society from this film? That they know how to make fun of themselves. Mm, okay. But the, the, I think, obviously, there's some things you don't make fun of in North Korea. Oh, um, of course, of course. You, right. you stay away from the trilogy, uh, the trinity, right? Yes. The party, the leaders, and the nation, right? Mm -hmm. You stay away from that. Right. But everything else is fair game. So, you know, the whole idea of the film is to be wary of strangers who come no. to you because right. they could be possibly spies. Yeah. No, it's a common theme in, in North Korean um, film literature and comic books. It, it's constantly recurring, isn't it? Absolutely. And, yeah. and, you know, the time period is very synonymous to South Korea as well, where the South Koreans were mm. also being very wary of strangers who approach you and say, excuse me, where is Seoul Station? And you're right. like, if you don't know, if you don't know Seoul Station, you must be a spy, <laughs> right? You know? Yeah, because spies don't get given maps. That's ever. right. That's right. You know? That's right. Um, yeah. Um, which means you shouldn't have been a spy in the first place. But right. anyway, yeah, so the whole film is about, you know, being vigilant about the possibility of, you know, spies yeah. encroaching in your country, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's all the whole film is about misunderstanding, uh, misidentification. And as a result, it ends up being like a, um, like a threes company style film. And I love those kind of misunderstanding, misidentification right. films. I love them. Now, I guess because it's a comedy, what uh, is interesting here is that uh, although, as we said, the, the spy hunting and, and being careful with secrets and looking out for the, the stranger with questions is a constantly reoccurring theme, because it's a comedy, nobody actually ends up being a spy, right? There really That's is right. nobody um, worth being careful of in this film. It's all a misunderstanding. Uh, and, and, and it's all cleared up in the end and nobody gets dragged off by the police or even worse. That's right. Absolutely. There is no enemy in this film. The only right. enemy is the propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the funny thing I noticed, uh, or the first thing that I noticed from watching this film is that in the first five minutes, which is, you know, setting the scene that uh, we're, we, uh, the whole setting is in a factory and the town around the factory. 
we know that the, the factory is somehow important and there are big targets and quotas, but I don't actually see any work being done, just people talking about work and quotas and looking at production results posters. But by the end of the film, I still don't know what kind of factory it is. Oh, absolutely. So it's a steel factory, by the way. Oh, it but, is? Uh, yeah, <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> Thanks it's for putting factory. me straight on that. I never got to right. work it Right, out. right. But, you know, I agree with you because the 1970s was a very particular time. Yeah. 1970s was all about the three revolutions and mm. the speed campaign. Oh, yeah. So the idea is ideology, technology, and culture for the three revolutions. Yeah. And Kim Jong-il established a speed campaign saying everyone needs to work overtime right. and produce crazy amounts of, you know, from the natural resources or whatnot. Yeah. Well, just like China and the Great Leap Forward, it, it wasn't very successful. So films show that as well, not only films, but literature as well, shows this kind of overproduction without actually producing anything. Uh, yes. And uh, they only talk about it. Yeah. They only talk about how to manage it, but they don't really know what to do. Now, the, uh, the big film, uh, sorry, one of the big themes is the keeping of secrets. And it starts off from the, uh, the poster that we see in the factory near the beginning of the film to the father of Yongsun going through old notebooks that are about to be thrown out, lest there be any secrets about to be spilled about the, the factory. Yes. Uh, and then a book falls on the street filled with statistics. Does this dovetail with the idea that the North Korean state doesn't actually like publishing statistics because any numbers about production could be used by the enemy? <laughs> I, don't, I, I really don't know about that, right? Because mm. the secrets seem so mundane. Yes, it is. It is right. There's real. I mean, yeah. What is in the end? What is so secretive about right. you know some numbers? Yeah, yeah. And th there is a secret that uh, there's something that Chosu the uh, the. Oh yes, that's a future son-in-law. The future son-in-law. He's doing something special at the factory, uh, and everyone in the movie, all the characters, hear the secret uh, except for the audience, and we never find out what he's doing, what he's developing at the factory, presumably some kind of secret weapon or something, but- Yeah, he's making weapons. It reminds me of the movie Pulp Fiction where the audience yes. knows that there's something in the briefcase, but we never get to see or know what it is. They call that a MacGuffin in the film. Yeah, world. that's right, that's right, that's right. Yes, absolutely, right. Unfortunately, uh, this film actually reveals what the future son-in-law is making, and he's making some kind of military arms. And- He's going to be a very celebrated researcher or technician. And, you know, someone in the, you know, you tell one person and that person tells the entire village. Right. And yeah. that's the moral of the story is keep your mouth shut. Keep your mouth, yeah. Loose lips sink ships, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, now, you really have to suspend disbelief when watching this film. There's, there's an amazing scene where uh, Che Man Ho, the protagonist, he hears that his neighbor and chess partner is missing a coverless notebook containing important and secret meeting notes. That's right. And then suddenly Mano has this flashback to another time when he's in Chosu's room at the factory dormitory. And he yes. remembers seeing Chosu's father picking up a coverless notebook in a completely different context, but somehow he manages to put two and two together and realize yes. that it's got to be the exact same notebook that his neighbor is missing. It couldn't be That's another right. one. It couldn't be another one. It has yeah. to be that one. Right. Even though it's in a different room on the other side of town, uh, you know, somehow he just worked. Oh my God, that's got to be the book. Yeah. I mean, you know, in order to make that comic narrative work, right. Yeah. There has to be some kind of cohesion. Right. Yeah. And the comic world is a very small world, right? Yeah. But, you know, I could turn that around and, and make fun of South Korean dramas as well and say, you know, how is it that all, in all these South Korean dramas, the same people run into each other yeah. all the time in a, in a city of 12 million people? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. Right? That's right. Yeah. And, and there's always somebody around the corner listening, uh, eavesdropping at a all particularly important all moment the of the conversation. Yeah, that's no, right. no, absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, and then there's another scene where uh, Myung-soo, a, a young man who's really, he's not an important character, but he's, no. he, he's late to meet his mother at the station, the train station. So she gets mistakenly picked up by Yongsun's mother, who thinks that uh, she's the mother of Chosu. She yes. brings her to her house. Myung-soo ends up walking into the garden of Yongsun's house and just spots yeah, his right. mother dozing off in the living room. That's, that's pretty right. random. It's that's almost right. as if he's walked into every single yard in the town and just happens he to probably did, yes. find the one. In Hollywood or South Korean movies, I feel that there would at least be some pretext as to why he was walking into that particular yard. 
And anyway, in a North Korean film, him walking into, you know, random yards willy-nilly and looking into people's houses, that could surely lead to him being misunderstood as a spy, and yet it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because the village or the township knows each other. I see. Right? So even if this random guy named Myungsu enters everyone's yard, yeah. oh, it's just Myungsu who works over at the steel factory. Right. You know? So everyone knows who he is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, now, there does appear to be a little bit of slapstick when Che Man-ho accidentally serves vinegar instead of soju to the father of Chosu. Yeah, so I would consider it farce more ah, than slapstick. Okay. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it would be slapstick if, for example, he tripped over and, and landed on the entire dinner table and spilled all the food and drink uh -huh. everywhere. But no, here it's he missed, he, he's trying to impress this person by yeah. giving him soju, but instead serves him vinegar. Yeah. And so that kind of farce and um, yeah, it, it's to me, you know, that's old school comedy. And, you know, I'm glad the North Koreans utilize it. It's, it's always endearing to watch. I'm mm -hmm. not sure if it will fly with some of the younger viewers today. Yeah. Uh, the word uh, song or vigilance is mentioned. Yes. Um, I used Numerous to, times. you know, when I read North Korean comic books for my own master's research, that word came up so often, especially in, uh, in spy hunting, because it's all about yes. keeping your guard up and not revealing secrets. And it reminds me of the, the US military term OPSEC or operational yes. security that you would see uh, on the old AFKN, what do you call it, public service announcements back in the 1990s. I mean, they may still yes. have them, but I haven't seen uh, AFKN since the 1990s, but yes, yes, it's very yes. similar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I dug up some old like South Korean pamphlets and posters from mm. the 19, late 1970s, early 80s, or all throughout the 80s. And you know, one of my favorite ones is, let's be a father who catches spies. Let's oh, be wow. a mother who reports spies. Yeah, right? okay. So uh, they don't, South Koreans didn't use the term Gyeonggakseong. Uh, but yes. but yeah, there were all these anti-spy uh, pamphlets and posters in mm -hmm. the 80s. Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, we used to see them in the, when I first came here uh, to South Korea in 1996. You'd still see them in the subway. You know, there'd be uh, a, a rat's tail coming out of a door. And so you could, you know, <sighs> it was, you know, look, you have to look for little things like if a rat's got a tail, you know, you got to call the That's number. So funny. I can't remember what the number was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there was a special spy catching number. Uh, and in the final scene of this movie, all the misunderstandings are resolved. And we find out amazingly, again, you've got to suspend your disbelief. We find out the exact path of travel about the news about the weapons being made at the factory. You know, from, uh, he says, well, I heard it from, from her. And she said, well, That's I right. heard it from that guy. And, and they all happened to be there in the scene at the exact time. So of course, you, you see exactly how it got from one to the other to the other. It's quite an amazing scene, and but everyone learns their lesson, right? Yeah, I mean... With, without anyone being arrested. <laughs> sure, sure. I, I don't know if you've uh, ever seen uh, Three's Company, uh, the sitcom in the United States, or the one in England. But yeah, every time there's a misunderstanding, yeah. all the characters have to be present in uh -huh. order to resolve that issue, right? Uh -huh. So it's a very common trope. It's not, yeah. it's not unusual uh, in a misunderstanding case. Okay. Uh, one thing I was a little bit unsure of was um, this whole uh, theme of tearing covers off notebooks and bringing the notebooks to some kind of a trading center. What's all that yes. about? Is that a normal thing in, in North Korean society of the time? This is a 1970 film. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, the trading center is like a recycling center. Okay. So they were doing paper recycling as early as 1970? Uh, probably even before that. Wow. Yeah. Now, I, now, I don't know the specifics of it, but I, I have seen it come up so often that yeah. I, it must be something uh, regular in the society. Okay. Now, I didn't catch the North Korean word that's used there, but it's actually a trading center, is it? Yeah, yeah. Like a sume, I forgot what they called it. It's sume, something sume, sume something. I can't remember. Does it imply that you bring in your old notebook and you get a new one? Or is it just you bring them in and that's it? I, I, I don't know the procedure. Okay, yeah, yeah. And are North Korean films chiefly about entertainment or teaching lessons? I do get the feeling, not just from this film, but all the three ones that we're going to talk about today, that they are very didactic in nature. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I think it could be both of them simultaneously. Yeah, well, it can be, but I do feel that the, the, the teaching, uh, what's the word, outweighs um, or smothers the, uh, the comedy sometimes? It's supposed to. It's supposed to, yes. I see. Yeah, because Kim Jong-il did not want comedy for comedy's sake. Yeah. 
but this is this is uh, this is very neurotic of him because how can you make comedy not funny? It wouldn't right. be comedy, right? So yeah. I think the filmmakers really knew how to evade that kind of dead end impasse mm. where it can be educational, but it can also be entertaining, wildly entertaining. Right. And I think not all North Korean comedy films are funny, by the way, right? Right. Just like how not all Hollywood comedy films are funny, right? Well, and, and not all of them have stood the test of time. Ones that were, That's you true. know, you, you don't see a lot of people these days watching Charlie Chaplin or, uh, or Lowell and Hardy films as funny anymore. You're absolutely right. And statistically, uh, in Hollywood, rom-coms have dropped significantly. So they're not producing as much hmm. rom-coms, romantic comedies, as yeah. they did back in the 80s and 90s. Okay, well, that brings us nicely to our rom-com that we're going to discuss today, yes. Uriya Hyangi, Our Fragrance, which uh, people can find on the Hansong uh, YouTube channel, H-A-N-S-U-N-G, Our Fragrance. Uh, tell us a little summary of this film, which is definitely a romantic comedy. Yes, so you have a woman who is a tour guide in mm. Pyongyang, yeah. welcoming foreigners to the nation's capital and showing the foreigners the wonders of North Korea. Right. And you have the male protagonist who is a kimchi researcher. Yeah. And the whole idea of this film is to criticize the woman mm -hmm. for being too westernized and whitewashed. Right. She has forgotten her roots. And in order for her to be a desirable daughter-in-law, mm. she has to retrace and rediscover her North Korean identity. Yeah. So it's not funny at all. I mean, the summary itself is not funny at all. No, it's a it, the comedy lies in um, sort of a comedy of manners and also some misunderstandings, doesn't it? That's correct. Yeah, and there's also the the theme of an arranged marriage between two grandparents, but it's kind of what I'd call a pseudo arranged marriage because the boy and the girl actually meet each other and grow to like each other before the formal betrothal. That's right. There's an inadvertent uh, meeting right. and they've already sort of locked eyes and, you know, they fancied each other way before the actual meeting. Now, this is a movie from 2003. Do we know if, um, is it, was it still the norm to uh, have arranged marriages in North Korea back then? Oh, I think South Koreans still have arranged marriages today. I don't, I don't think that culture has, is really going to change in both Koreas. Yeah, I think though that if you if you look at the statistics that the the uh, you know the the line of arranged marriage versus what they call marriage for love uh, those two lines crossed sometime in the late 1990s. Yeah, no, I, I understand, but it's not unusual for uh, North Korea to have an arranged marriage. Now, mm -hmm. I think the purpose of the arranged marriage in this particular film mm. was to set up the misunderstanding. Yeah. So, so that's, that's where the arranged marriage comes into actually a very functional role, right? right. It has a comic value to it. Unlike, ah, yeah. th there are other um, North Korean comedy films where arranged marriage is there as well, and um, it really didn't really need to be there. Mm, okay. Yeah, but this one served a purpose. Now, there's a scene here in this movie about 50 minutes in, which is the, uh, where the grandfather of the, uh, the young man, the kimchi researcher. Yes. He pays a visit to the house of the, uh, the young woman and her family. Uh, yes. And it happens to be his birthday. So they throw him a birthday party that they've clearly prepared for. And this is this full of little you know, mistakes and misunderstandings of, of manners and appropriateness. Uh, yes. For example, the, the father of the young woman uh, eagerly shakes the hand of the, of the older man, which apparently right. is not something you do in North Korea. I learned that from this movie. Uh, yes. The grandfather is offered slippers to wear inside the house, and he's asked to sit on a, on a sofa. Foreign food and champagne is offered. Uh, I wonder if that's a scene that resonated with North Koreans. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it uh, resonated with the North Koreans. Did they find it funny? Maybe. Mm -hmm. But so the film is set up in a way that the fault is all in the woman's family. Right. Right. The, the female protagonist's family. And, you know, the target is on her back for criticism, and yeah. she's supposed to not appreciate Western values, but North Korean values, right? But actually, if you watch the film very, very carefully, mm. the reason they serve the grandfather and the future son-in-law all these Western foods yeah. is the future son-in-law's parents yep. all lived abroad. Right. 
And, and the son and the, the, the kimchi researcher had gone to school abroad. That's right. So they were actually accommodating them, yeah. right? Uh, they were serving foreign foods because they thought this family would appreciate the foreign food, not right. the Korean food. In fact, uh, before the, the future son-in-law came to visit, yeah. uh, the mother and the grandmother of the female protagonists actually suggested like jjigae, you know, traditional Korean food. Yeah. But then the daughter said, no, these people lived abroad. Why don't we right. give them food that they actually like? Mm. So it's actually not the women's family's fault. But right. the film sort of changes it and makes it their fault. And I also found it really difficult to sympathize with the, uh, the grandfather um, of the young man, especially when it seemed like he didn't know how to sit on a sofa properly. Yeah, that, that kind of, I would, I would consider that slapstick, you know, him falling on the ground because he didn't know how to sit on a sofa. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is really extreme and it's borderline absurd. Yeah, but he, but he also comes across as really stiff and awkward. So the absurdity doesn't, for me, work in a funny way. It works in an awkward way. That's right. That's right. Now I'll tell you, I'll tell you what's even more interesting than that. Ah. The guy, the grandfather, the guy who plays the grandfather, yes. he's actually, he's actually not a comedian. <laughs> he's actually a, a, a dramatic actor. I don't know if you've seen, if you've seen the spy film series, Nameless Heroes. I haven't seen it, but I've, I've always wanted to, but it, it's. Okay, Jacko, you're going to have to watch this. You're going to okay. have to watch it. It's all available on YouTube mm. and it is now available on, in color. Hey. Okay. Okay. Nameless Heroes. He's okay. one of the main characters in Nameless Heroes. I will. I'll have to check that out. Now, there's there's a lot of cultural nationalism uh, in this. We, we've already mentioned the kimchi. And there's also yes. a big theme about Korean traditional dress, what they call in South Korea, hanbok. But of course, that's not the term used in North Korea. They don't like any word beginning with han in North that's Korea. Right. Um, also, the Korean traditional wrestling, shirim, uh, and so on. Is that a common trope in North Korean cultural production, this sort of emphasis on old traditions, you know, pre-modern, perhaps you know, even uh, from the, you know, the, the, the royal times, the feudal dynasties, uh, is that really you know, a common thing that's emphasized in North Korea? No, no, I think this is one of the rare films uh, that really placed emphasis on yeah. tradition, uh, heavy tradition, really. This is like a heavy dose of tradition, right? Right. You know, the, the film begins with a, a national holiday and it goes through um, like a year's worth of different national holidays that they're celebrating. Uh, so, yes. you know, yeah. So it, it shows that kind of need to observe national holidays. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there are these little um, speeches, these little lessons that we get from time to time. So there's one where um, after the grandfather gets drunk on champagne at, at the birthday party and he fakes a stroke and goes home yes. and he says to his daughter-in-law, few families celebrate birthdays that way. But if a single family does it, it will gradually prevail in the country. This will eclipse our national custom and people will dance to another's tune. Food is no exception. How good ours is. I don't criticize food from other countries. I intended to make them have a correct understanding of our food. And that's, that, that's really um, kind of sums up the whole movie, isn't it? It's, it's really what Udi Hyangi is about, both the title and the movie. Yeah, so, you know, this is really borrowing from Kim Jong-il's ideology back in the late 80s, I guess. Mm -hmm. Our style of socialism, right? right? Yeah. And everything after that became our, our this, our that, uh, right? Um, and what is our national culture? Well, here it is. Watch yeah. the film and you'll know, you know? Yeah. And this one is very didactic, right? Yeah, yeah oh, ex extremely didactic. Gosh, there are scenes there. There are whole scenes where there's nothing even remotely funny or entertaining. It's just, you know, a lesson, a speech. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's teaching the women how to be correct, right? Yeah. I mean... Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you the ir irony, and this is where I think the filmmakers really took a jab. Toward the end, when the women's family comes to visit the grandfather and says, oh, we're so sorry, right. we'll, we'll be more nationalistic, and so yeah. forth, right? The grandfather is sitting there, yeah. and then the women's family looks at the grandfather's house and says, wow, yeah. your house is so traditional, right? Yeah. We love it. And the film pans across the living space yeah and what you see is a japanese television huh. a, a japanese uh, upright fan and huh. like 
a, a drawer, like a plastic drawer from Ikea or something. Oh boy. Um, and, and that's what the filmmakers captured. That's what the uh, filmmakers considered to be traditional. And I find that to be really ironic and, uh-huh. you know, something very creative that the filmmakers have done. It was it creative or was it perhaps accidental or inadvertent? Oh, no, no, no. It, it couldn't be accidental. Okay. I'll tell you a couple of ironic things that I saw in this film. There, the first one is that we have the national costume held up as a virtue, you know, with especially with the um, the, the, this subplot of a um, a fashion show and yes. fashion designers who are bring, you know designing national costumes. But actually, the national costume is something reserved exclusively for women, right? That, that there's the the, the man, um, you know, uh, I've forgotten the young man's name. Oh, Pyongho. The the young man doesn't wear a a hanbok in these things. Yeah, he, wears he wears a Western, a Western suit. suit. Yes. Yeah, it's it's almost like a half tradition. It's talking about the you know talking up the virtues of national costume, but it's really only for women. Right. So this film is really directed at women hmm. needing to be more patriotic and right. display this kind of love for the country. Yeah. And then the other, the second ironic thing is towards the end of the film, about uh, one hour and seven minutes in, uh, where the, uh, the the young woman uh, is leading foreign tourists around, and they go and look at some Korean food, and the foreigners go nuts about kimchi, and they're all showing you know interest in kimchi and asking questions about kimchi, and it reminds me of the times when I was in North Korea as a tourist. We almost never received kimchi unless we asked for it, and sometimes had to pay extra. And then we'd get like a, a third or a half of a whole head of kimchi on a massive plate. So, you know, way more than we needed. But it, it seems that for foreign tourists, they're not expected to like or eat or want kimchi. But here, here in this film, we get a five minute lecture on the history and biochemistry of kimchi uh, to foreigners. Yes. Well, yeah. you know, actually, historically, uh, what happened was South Korea submitted, I believe it's kimchi making practice or mm-hmm. kimchi making tradition to the UNESCO cultural heritage or I forget the actual title yeah. and it got accepted. Mm. And then North Korea followed suit a couple of years after that. And that's just around the time when uh, this film was made. Yeah. So there was a whole like kimchi vibe, kimchi wave happening. Uh... Right. But the reason South Koreans uh, submitted that to the UNESCO was mm. Japan asserted that kimchi was originally from Japan. Mm. So that kind of pissed a lot of Koreans off. Uh, uh, Byung-ho, the character, in his long speech about kimchi, he then goes into uh, the speech about Korean nationalism and he connects it to uh, to the bloodline, the na- the importance of the the, the minjoge hyeltong, right? The, yeah, uh, being yeah, of that's... the same bloodline and culture and customs uh, as important as uh, as the blood. And and that's interesting because he's, he's talking to foreigners who themselves... I looked at the uh, the credits at the end of the film. The foreigners are played by Koreans, and then I couldn't yes. help but wonder if they're played by uh, North Koreans who um, just happen to look like foreigners, or North Koreans who are naturalized foreigners, or North Koreans who are of mixed parentage. Yeah, I don't know. I I haven't looked closely at the extras that came out, but yeah, you, you might be onto something. Yeah, it just felt a bit awkward to me that here he is talking about the importance of the national brother, and he's saying this to to North Koreans who are playing the parts of foreigners who, in fact, look like foreigners. Well, I mean, it's also because uh, there's not a huge population of foreigners living in North Korea who can play roles in a film, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, although, I mean, as you've seen in, in some of the other films, they, they do pop up now and again, right? You'd, uh... Yeah, there were, there were those four or three uh, U.S. soldiers who defected uh-huh. to the north and they appear in Nameless Hero. All four of them appear in the Nameless Hero series. Yeah. And one of them continued to appear uh, in other films as well, but they always appear as the evil imperialist uh, US, right? Or uh, military men. Well, in one of the episodes of The Nation and Destiny, uh, there was a, uh, uh, a Westerner, or it could have been an Arabic person, I don't know, but a, a bearded man with brown hair uh, in a Taekwondo uniform doing Taekwondo. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, yes, yes. Anyway, so that's that's uh, our fragrance, um, and let's get on to the last one now, uh, Nega Chajan Bormul, uh, the, yeah. uh, the the treasure that I found, which you can find on Korean World uh, YouTube channel, Korean World, and it looks like it's been videotaped straight off the TV with the weather forecast details scrolling across the bottom of the screen. Yeah, I don't know how this person obtained this uh, short film. It's it's quite something. It's only fifteen minutes long. It's like a public service announcement about um, recycling 
Uh, and it's actually funny, but it, it's more the, the, for me, the, the funny or the interesting part lay more in the filming and the editing uh, and That's a little right. bit of slapstick. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Uh, it, parts, it seems to be part of a series, Iron Hyunsangul Obsepshida, let's get rid of, uh, or let's rid our society of this. Yeah, what, tell me your thoughts on it. Yeah, so this series actually dates back to the 1970s. Ah. And Kim Jong-il commissioned the filmmakers to come up with this kind of public service announcement, anywhere from 15 minutes to 20 minute long short film. Yeah. And the series ran for a little bit in the 1970s. And it stopped because mm. no one was really watching it. And, and then it got picked up again in the 80s. Didn't, you know, didn't last very long. And now I somehow stumbled across this one and another yep. one that was very refreshing to watch because of how current it was. Yeah, it, it's, it's um, I, do you know when it was made? I, I mean, I'm guessing I in the last know. five to 10 years. I mean, they, they... probably even less than that, I would say. Wow. Okay. Because, yeah, there are smartphones that are used. I tried to to get a look at, um, there's one scene where there's a calendar in the background and I tried to get a look at what the month was so I could work out which, which year that was made in, but I right. couldn't you know, zoom in and it was, the resolution wasn't good enough. So right. uh, it's impossible to tell exactly when it was made, but at some time in the last decade. Uh, yeah. And thanks to this film, I learned that Omul is the North Korean word for trash or garbage trash, or rubbish yeah, rather yeah. than yeah. Suregi. Uh, right. And Pasuji, which I had to spend a bit of time looking up, means recyclable PET plastic. Yeah, the famous Pettebyong in South Korea. Ah, yeah, Pette, so that's Pettebyong is Pasuji. Yeah. And now here, uh, as, as in fact in the other two films, we have strong women, uh, very outspoken women. Yes, yes. So uh, this series goes back and forth with the representation of strong women and strong men. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, one, one episode could have a very strong woman. The other episode could have a very strong man. Mm. But one of them is always teaching the other how to be a noble, uh -huh. upright citizen. Okay, so it just happens to be a coincidence that the three films that we're talking about today, each of them had uh, strong women characters in them. That's correct. Yeah, okay. The series is quite long, and there are more than, I would say, 60 or 70 uh, shorts, probably mm. even more than that. And it goes back and forth between the men and women. Right. Now, what's so remarkable about the cinematography and editing of this film? Because to me, it, it, it has a very different look and feel to uh, Uri Ahyangi from 2003. You're absolutely correct. And that's because they use digital camera. Ah, okay. A lot of jump cuts too, though, right? A lot of different, different perspectives and all edited together. Yes, the editing is absolutely remarkable here, mm. okay? And what really drew me into watching, I, I, you know, I really don't care about the educational message. Mm -hmm. um, the educational message is, you know, we should all recycle. Okay. That, that's, you know, okay. So let's get past that. Yeah. You know, let's actually get to the cinematography and the filmmaking of it. It's yeah. absolutely hilarious. The jump cuts are really good. The, sometimes there would be like, lapsing of time where where you see the husband yeah. running around yeah. uh in a frenzy yes and and you know they sped up the uh the uh, the speed of the yes of the, yeah so he's running around really fast and he's getting hot because it's a summer day he's got the, the sweat towel on his neck and he's wiping yes. his face yes 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 and you see a lot of uh going back and forth between uh the speakers the, yeah. in their dialogue right yeah. and in, in previous Film, short films, or even North Korean films in general, mm. they don't do that kind of jump cut uh, quite often because yeah. it's too taxing. Right. Uh, and the editing is not so good. So it, when you watch a North Korean film, it actually looks like a staged film, right? Like, uh. a, like as if they're doing some kind of play or theater yeah, so film. Basically a camera pointed at a theater stage. Yes, yes, yeah. right. So, uh, but this one is clearly handheld. It's right up to their face. Yeah. And it's over the shoulder hmm. and the editing is fast. So there's no dragging, right. um, lagging. There's nothing of that sort. It's very uh, careful editing. The music is very vivacious. Hmm. And, you know, the characters, although they're, they're not really well-known characters in the film industry, yeah. uh, in, in the TV industry, they might be they're actually well known so ah, the actors who play the characters you mean yes yes yeah. there are two different worlds right the film industry and the television industry so yeah, sure so these people are you know somewhat big namers in mm. that and 
yeah, the sound quality is excellent. The music selection is good. Overall, this this 15-minute uh, film is mm. excellently made. Would you say that it shows foreign influences? Uh, yes, I have, absolutely. If, if anything, South Korean influence. Hmm. That's interesting. Because I don't know if you noticed that, but as soon as I saw it, I thought, wait a minute, this could pass as a South... I mean, forget about the dialogue and, yeah. the, and the, you know, forget about all that. The, the style of its filming mm. could pass as a South Korean drama. Yeah, actually, I watched it with my wife and, and she said that it reminds her of, uh, of the sort of public service announcement type short films that you'd see in Korea back in the, uh, in the 80s. Well, yeah, I mean, the content of the film might be that. Yeah. Right? And the acting might might be that, but yeah. uh, the cinematography certainly in the uh, 1980s North uh, South Korea did not do the cinematography like this. No, no, that's true. Yeah, it, it in terms of the sound quality, it does appear to me to have been filmed first, and then the actors recorded the dialogue later on in an audio recording studio, and then that recording track was overlaid on top of the film. Would you agree? Yeah, so that's what they usually do, mm. and they've done that, and I believe they still do that in North Korea. Uh, because the ed editing system is not really well their technology is really not that great but with the digital camera i i, I don't know there might be a, a mic I, i'm gonna have to go back and check yeah because if you certainly if you're filming outdoors unless you've got a really you know a close-up mic yeah either hanging from a boom or or clipped onto the clothing you're going to pick yeah. up a lot of outdoor uh, sort of external extraneous yeah. noise a yeah ambient sound yeah yeah uh, you're right. Uh, and, and it doesn't really have that. You're right. So and it might have been recorded afterwards. And to me, it seemed to be done a little bit in a crude way so that the sound levels don't always match. So, for example, when you've got the filming done inside the, the man's office, uh, the, the sound of the phone ringing is much louder than the sound of the actual dialogue. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to go back and check, check that as well. But yeah, definitely worth watching. Do you have a, a favorite out of these three North Korean films? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite one is uh, "Boasting Too Much" because it has my it has all my favorite comedians in it. Ah, uh, do you think there's anything practical to be learned uh, from watching North Korean films, either about North Korean society or, uh, well, yeah, North Korean society? Yeah, I mean, again, if we focus too much on the content, we're not going to gain much. Mm. I mean, it's <clears throat> the same old story with a different tune, right? Yeah. But I think, especially with this last one, mm. the treasure that I found, yeah. it's very evident that the television industry is heading towards something other than what they've been doing for the past 70 years. Mm. And for me, that's a very promising direction. And I, I, hope, I hope that they continue to make advances in this industry and really come about with some substantial change. Well, this year, we've seen some stories come out uh, reporting that Kim Jong-un has um, uh, written openly criticizing foreign influence and South Korean influence as well. Yeah, um, K-pop, yeah. Yes. Do you see that, that that could curb any uh, of these new tendencies that we're seeing in North Korean film? No, I don't think so. You think that that genie's out of the bottle? Yeah, you know, and uh, there's a lot of talk. Mm. Little, I mean, the same thing happened with Kim Jong-un's time. He, you know, he would say things like that. And the filmmakers always found a way to make it entertaining. And so I think as long as the editors or the censors don't come down too hard on the, the television industry, mm -hmm. I, think, I think the television industry has a very bright future. Mm. Looking at these uh, films and the TV shows, uh, do you get any thoughts on... North and South Korean society, you know, how hard it could be, uh, for example, if the two ever reunify in the future to have a, you know, will there be cultural cleavages that will be hard to overcome? Or you, do you look oh, at these and, and see that the, there's actually, they're closer and more similar than we think? No, 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 no. The, the, the cultural gap is quite wide mm. and it's not impassable. So, I mean, it can be bridged. Yeah. But, you know, like with anything, it just requires some time. Mm. But I think if, if there's any chance of this kind of cultural exchange, yeah. I think it would be with the music and the t TV industry, right? Mm. So um, I think the North Koreans would really like to adopt some of the techniques used in South Korean drama, for sure. Mm. Absolutely. Because South Korean drama is so well made. Do you mean technical techniques like actually, you know, filming and recording, or do you mean uh, yeah, yeah, plot, filming plot and devices recording. and writing? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, even with some of the writing, like dialogue as well, yeah. 
I don't know. I, I find some of the South Korean dramas to be corny as well. Oh yeah. But um, you know, I think technicality is what the North Koreans are going after. Mm. And the treasure that I found really showed that promise and mm-hmm. that direction. Right. Yeah. So if they continue this and yeah. if the censors don't stop the creative minds in the television industry, yeah. then I think in about five to 10 years, you'll see some drastic changes in North Korea. Uh, that, that's a big prediction there, Emmanuel. That's, uh, that's a very big prediction. Wow. Uh, what research are you working on these days? Well, with the whole pandemic, it's very difficult to venture out of my house and right. go into the library. So I've not done much in terms uh-huh. of uh, my research, but mm. I've been watching a lot of films and a lot of North Korean short films. Mm. Okay. So uh, perhaps some more, uh, more writing on uh, some short films in the future? Yes. All right. Final thoughts to leave us with today? Um, well, it was a pleasure to be finally on yeah. this show and this program. <laughs> You know, I, I've been following NK News for many years now. Oh, great. And, you know, I, I look forward to working with NK News in the future. Thank you. Yeah, well, perhaps we'll get you into uh, to write a guest piece uh, on um, um, some of the topics that you've been researching. Well, I'll leave that up to your investigative journalists because I think they're doing a fantastic job. Okay, well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, Emmanuel Kim. Once again, your three books for our listeners – Rewriting Revolution, Women, Sexuality, and Memory in North Korean Fiction, published by the University of Hawaiian, Hawaii Press in 2018. Then the second one, Friend, a novel from North Korea, published by Weatherhood Books on Asia, Weatherhead Books on Asia, I should say, in April 2020. And Laughing North Koreans, The Culture of Comedy Films, published by Lexington Books in June 2020. Uh, available where all good books are sold, presumably? I believe so, yes. Okay. Well, thanks very much for joining us on the show today. We appreciate it, and uh, good luck with the future research. Thank you very much, Jacko. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast today. If you have an NK News account and you're a think tank, business, or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have any feedback or questions or guest recommendations, please send them by email to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks as always to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our new post-recording producer genius. Thanks and listen again next time. <laughs>